Hello and welcome to the Koi Tank podcast. Today we have my sister, Kelsey Best, on the show, who is a scientist, researcher, genius, all around very good person. So enjoy the show. Who is Henry? Because I feel like everyone should know who Henry is. <laughs> Henry is my puppy. He's the best ever. He's a little rescue mutt that we got about four years ago. Pulling up a picture. And he's pretty much my my soulmate in animal form. In that he's a little neurotic and very cute. Like me. <laughs> <laughs> What's one thing so, yeah, that annoys him. you most about Henry? That's him. <laughs> annoys me most about Henry? Yeah, like if you could change one attribute of Henry, would he Mm. change anything? He does bark out the window quite a bit. He thinks he has to protect us, so if anyone goes by, he's on high alert. But his number one enemy is the mailman. (laughs) So when when the mailman comes around every day, Henry goes to war. Does he disrupt zoom meetings like uh spice tends to do that and sit right in front of the camera he (laughs) likes the attention but uh yeah so when i'm working from home i work in our guest room and he sits right behind me on the bed so in most of the zoom meetings he'll kind of pop his head up (laughs) at some point and then fall back asleep i feel like it's part of the virtual world just pets are just part of it have your colleagues or students gotten used to Henry at all yet? Are they like, oh, that's Henry, or is it just like an occasional thing? (laughs) Yeah, I'm usually just like, oh, that's my dog, and then we talk about our pets. But yeah, that's been one of the fun parts about the Zoom world is seeing other people's pets, too, usually chatting about it. Yeah, yeah, he's not here now, but it's nice because he'll sit behind me all day and like, you know, guard my back so no one can... (laughs) Sneak up on me. You didn't bring him to Hawaii? No, I don't think he would do very well on the 12 hour plane. I'd have to like tranquilize him and <laughs> tranquilize stick, him in the car- him? stick him in the cargo hole. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He's a big baby. He'd be freaked out. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about Princeton? Sure. What was like your overall experience there like? Because like, I remember visiting a while back, but I just have vague details. I don't have any, like, I don't really understand how your experience was in full detail. So I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a good experience, but also a mixed experience for me in some ways. One of the biggest things was, you know, coming from, a small high school and being, you know, pretty consistently at the top of my class and, you know, thinking I was pretty smart (laughs) then going to Princeton where everyone is the top of their class and people are just so passionate and accomplished and there's also just, there's definitely a lot of privilege, but one thing I think Princeton does a good job of is 
they were the first country, uh, the first university in the country to have no loans in their financial aid. So they cover a hundred percent of need for everyone that comes into Princeton, which I think does potentially, you know, it means there's more diversity. You don't have to just be wealthy to go, though there were plenty of very wealthy people. You have the people whose like grandparents went to Princeton and then their parents went to Princeton. Um, but yeah, anyway, I guess the, the biggest thing that I learned immediately was like that maybe I'm not quite as smart as I thought I was and that like it was kind of humbling and I really struggled with academics for kind of the first time, like just found kind of a new level of learning and thinking and like failed my first physics quiz and I'd never failed anything before. <laughs> um, but I think it was really good for me and that it gave me a lot more resilience and like, you know, I definitely had to work hard, didn't, didn't come easily. Um, so that, that was kind of mixed, I guess. The, the engineering program that I was in was not the most nurturing environment and that like the professors were pretty harsh and like we had this thing called grade deflation where they would only give a certain number of A's, B's and C's and like adjust people's grades, which, you know, sometimes meant you got curved up, but usually meant, you know, you got curved down, grade deflation, right? It's pretty brutal. Uh, pretty brutal, yeah. So it was, it was very, it felt like kind of a sink or swim environment from the professor's standpoint, but then the students would, like, definitely help each other, and, like, we'd have study groups and homework groups for, like, every problem set we did and just kind of help each other through it. Um, had a couple, like, older sexist professors, which was weird to navigate coming from an all-girls school. Um, but yeah, I think overall it made me, like, tougher and... I'm like super grateful for all the resources and the opportunities that came from it. Um, yeah, I could probably talk about all these different things for like forever, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely a level of like elitism that I wasn't a huge fan of, like even with the eating clubs, some of them are exclusive and you know, in my own eating club, which was already exclusive, there would be like clubs of people within that. So it felt like, you know, you're in an exclusive institution, you add another exclusivity layer and then add another, it's like just weird levels of exclusion. And like, why do we have to be like this? But maybe that's just a human thing. I kind of already know this, but like, how do the different eating clubs vary from each other? And like, what are they like specifically? Yeah, so it's a unique Princeton thing. Um, and you join, you can bicker, was just like rushing basically um, your sophomore year. And then you're a full member junior and senior year. So I think there's 12 of them and half of them you have to bicker so they can reject you and half of them you can just sign into so less exclusive um but yeah each one kind of has a different stereotype or like personality i guess like the one i was in was kind of the mock trial 
theater nerds, <laughs> like not the cool kids, but <laughs> a lot of like performance people. Um, there was one that was kind of considered like the stoner, like vegetarian hippie one. There was one that had more athletes or more international students, you know, more like beautiful people. So there were definitely stereotypes to each one. Did Mine you, had better food than some of the others, which was a perk. Did you have to bicker to get into yours? Yeah, so I did. And each club also has a very different bicker process. And one of the one of the good things about mine is bickering was actually really fun. Like we just we just had to go to the club a couple of days and like basically just interact with the members. The members would be there like and you would just talk to them or some of them would have like a board game or like a silly like get to know you game and you really just kind of went around like casually talking to people and then they I mean you know they do kind of like rank you (laughs) which is weird to think about but but it was nice and my club also had a no negative rule so like when the members got together to discuss everyone people weren't allowed to say anything negative which is nice like you couldn't stand up and be like I really hate that girl (laughs) Um, so it, it felt nicer I know I've heard at least stories of some of the other clubs having much less nice vicar and ranking processes so mine was pretty pretty tame um did like princeton influence your like political beliefs in any way like how was it how did it change from graduating harpeth hall to graduating princeton because i feel like in college people are always having political conversations and dialogues and stuff Mm -hmm. like that Yeah, I think I just didn't think about it as much in high school because I was kind of in a bubble, you know, and had the luxury of not having to think about it as much. But then going to Princeton and, like, being exposed to such a broad range of ideas and perspectives and, you know, just really, like, the world kind of opening up. Um, So, yeah, there was, like, quite a bit of, you know, social justice activism going on at Princeton and some of my friends were pretty involved so that definitely influenced me and like you know my freshman year roommate is still my best friend to this day and she's very like socially minded and I I think that definitely influenced me too and also yeah just being around so many different kinds of people from all over the world having my own uh, like international experiences while I was at Princeton, it just like opened up the world, and I think, yeah, it definitely did shape the way I see the world. In that, it's just like it was bigger, and I think it made me think more about politics and like just be more deliberate about the beliefs I held. Did any of like the politics you saw there annoy you in any way? <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, there's like the young Republicans who are kind of annoying, but it was also like a little less, a little less polarized in like 2011 to 2015 pre, pre pre-Trump. Um, but yeah, and there were definitely like the obnoxious kids who were like super into mock trial and 
political clubs and like where you could kind of tell we're you know like training to be senators or whatever the next um, so, ted cruises you know, and like, stuff like that <laughs> yeah there was a guy in my class who was like definitely just mini ted cruz <laughs> and was very vocal about like you know he wanted to be president of the united states and was gonna go for it and it's like Okay, too. <laughs> but you're also really annoying. <laughs> um, tell me about the fuzzy dice. <laughs> yeah, of course. The best part of Princeton. Yeah, I will say, like, in general, the very best part of it was just meeting people that are my friends forever, um, like the fuzzy dice. So, yeah, I never did any kind of performance in high school. And then auditioned for Fuzzy Dice Improv Group just as a moral support for a friend, actually, who was going to audition. He was like, I mean, not even a friend, because it was like the first week of school, you know, someone I met who was like, hey, I'm going to go audition for this thing. Will you come with me? And I was like, okay, I've never done improv, like never thought about improv, but sure. So I went and the auditions are like, you play silly games and you know, make stuff up on the spot. And I got a call back, which really surprised me. And then somehow got in and they accepted four of us. And they, what they do is they pick you up at your dorm room if you get in. So basically, <laughs> you know, my friend Quentin, he's like big and super loud. So I found out I got in by Quentin banging on my dorm room, carrying a boom box, blasting <laughs> Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> like shouting my name um and basically like run out with them and so yeah i spent four years doing improv and we did shows and rehearsals every week and just we did retreats and like we still even now that we're all graduated we have like adult retreats we have a group chat we talk every single day like it was just the best and and also just having the stress relief of like built in time in my schedule to laugh and be silly every week was mm -hmm. like really amazing. Uh, last Princeton one, because okay. we, you said you could talk about that all day and it is interesting, mm -hmm. but yeah. if you had to pinpoint like the best memory from Princeton or just like one of the top ones in general, what would you say that would be? Hmm. That's such a good question. I'm sure there were a lot of highs and lows, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, being picked up by the Fuzzy Dice is definitely one of them. Quentin and his boombox. Um... This one's a little bittersweet, but I, it stands out to me as like, again, just kind of highlighting how good my friends were, but I had like just been through a breakup and was really sad, obviously. Um, but my friends and my roommate were just like, okay, we're going to New York City, like get up, we're going. And so we just, you know, picked up and I think they like poured some vodka in a water bottle and <laughs> we got on New Jersey transit and they just took me out to dinner in New York City and we like walked around Central Park and it was just one of those like 
really kind of magical to just be like suddenly you're in the city and you have these friends who've got your back and just like know how to take you out of being sad and so yeah we had a lovely dinner walked around and came back and it was just like yeah just one of those moments where it's like wow my friends have really got me so that one that's when I come back to and also New York City is just like a magical place I guess I should mention that I met my husband in Princeton, too. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> like, aren't you Forgot obliged to say that? <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah, that was a good thing, too. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that but part. But <laughs> It's like, it's, it's that he's become such a part of my life now that he's, I don't even really associate him with Princeton. You know, it's like he's everything. But, yeah, that yeah. was a good thing to come out to. <laughs> I need to talk to him because he, he can really talk a long time and... He's also very intelligent, yeah. so <laughs> yeah, you I need, need to. to ask. You should definitely have him on your podcast. He'll he'll talk to you about healthcare forever. Oh yeah, we've already had the healthcare conversation before, mm-hmm. which is a good one. But uh, mm-hmm. I lied about that being the last question because there is one more thing I'm curious of, and so uh, why did you pick uh, chemical engineering of like mm-hmm. all the majors? I picked chemical engineering because I really liked math and science, and I still do, and I liked the idea of it being applied to the real world. Um, So I I liked chemistry and thought, oh, chemical engineering is chemistry applied, um, which actually they're very, very different. So I think I didn't quite understand what chemical engineering was and somehow ended up picking the hardest major. So that's how I chose, but then I minored in environmental studies and that ended up being like, you know, just the best for me and totally I found just so much more passion in those classes and got to take like, I think like one class that really influenced me was ethics of the environment, which was co-taught by someone in the geology department, so like a natural scientist and a moral philosopher, a very famous moral philosopher, Peter Singer, who's like very famous. Um, Mm -hmm. And like having that kind of incredible interdisciplinary class about the environment, I was like, wow, I didn't even know that you could think about things this way. And like that, um, that was really great. So didn't love the engineering, but found the environmental stuff which I'm grateful for. <laughs> kind of jealous. I wish I could have taken that same class. Uh, I liked yeah. my environmental ethics class, but it was primarily a Marxist class, as you yeah. could tell by a lot of my stuff I wrote. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, this wasn't a planned question, but like, do you think your major, like, how how does that help like your current research, if at all? like? Mm-hmm. Where do you apply that today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it more than anything taught me how to problem solve, like getting through those chemical engineering classes and like these huge problem sets that would take hours and hours and like were just so complicated. (laughs) It taught me like how to chip away at a technical problem. You know, like if I'm faced with a a technical problem, I have faith that I can work through it eventually, (laughs) you know, like 
it might take a while, it might not be pretty, but I can, I can confront a problem. And that's, that's a really good skill. Um, for my senior thesis, I did some coding and some modeling, which I don't do that kind of modeling anymore. But I think being able to show, hey, I have done modeling before and applied it to a real problem helped me a lot to get into the grad program I'm in now. Um, and for the most part, I think the chemical engineering degree like did open a lot of doors because people are like, okay, like you did engineering, you know, kind of take you seriously. They're like, you can do, you know, pretty, pretty advanced math. You have the coding experience. So I think really getting to this point, it helped me just like demonstrate that I could do that kind of thinking. Proves you're a badass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, all right. So how did you go from Princeton to Exxon? And mm-hmm. what was that experience at Exxon like? Ooh, we're going down the whole, <laughs> the whole life course. Um, so ExxonMobil recruited at Princeton in the chemical engineering department. So we got like a you know, an email, ExxonMobil's coming to campus, fill out this pre-application. So I did that and they basically screen the applications before they even come to campus and select a couple people to give interviews to on campus. And then from those interviews, they select one person, me. Um, So, I, you know, I applied. My my friend Dan, who was in Fuzzy Dice, had worked for ExxonMobil the year before. He was the year ahead of me, had done the internship with them. And, you know, it sounded like a good experience for him. Um, but I went into it, like, very upfront that I wanted to do environmental sustainability work. Like, that's what I was interested in, which I, you know, didn't even know if they had any kind of spot for that um, and was actually very hungover for my interview, (laughs) like the most I have been in my entire life. (laughs) So I think that meant I didn't have any kind of like nerves or filter. It was just like raw survival, Kelsey. (laughs) So somehow um, got got the internship. So I spent a summer in Virginia doing the internship where they gave me a sustainability related project. It was like a mini project looking at recycling their oil barrels and like estimating the environmental benefit of that. Um, And so at the end of the internship, everyone does a big presentation to like a bunch of executives and a couple of the interns get full-time job offers. So I got the full-time job offer, and again, I was really clear that I would only take the job if it was sustainability-related, and they had a job open up because it was a new position, but the woman who I'm, I'm still friends with who had kind of created that position was leaving, so the position had opened up, and I was able to come into that, which was a supply chain sustainability for their procurement organization. So basically the part of the company that buys everything from you know office supplies to 
rig equipment. Um, so my job and the job that I came into was to convince the people buying things, some of them who had been in those jobs for you know 30 years, that they should consider the environmental impacts of the things they were purchasing along with, you know, like cost and safety and performance criteria. So that was wild. Um, you know, I think coming into a huge corporation as a 21, 22 year old woman with kind of a squeaky voice <laughs> and trying to like convince people that they need to do things differently was really interesting and in that I got a lot of pushback and a lot of like, well, why? Why should we care about, you know, diversity and human rights and environmental impact? And I'm like, well, so, you should probably just care, but also it'll save you money. <laughs> yeah, sorry, people in corporations that big, like genuinely oblivious to those things that you're trying to tell them or? I think it depends on the corporate culture and ExxonMobil just has a very old school corporate culture in that like they want you to come in as a young person and they expect you or like want you to stay your entire career and you move jobs every two or three years. So you're constantly moving. There's like an overseeing body that controls your career tra trajectory. So there's not much incentive to be innovative if you're gonna be in a role for two years and then go somewhere else. Like there's more incentive to just kind of like do the job and not break anything and then move on. And so you have people who've been doing that kind of job for 30 years and are pretty much like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the job in front of me. This is how it's always been done. This is how I'm going to do it. So I just think their culture was completely just wrong for any kind of innovation. At least, I mean, at least in like parts of the organization that I saw, it was like, put your head down, you know, do the job, go home, which is fine, you know, um, but it meant that it was like more of an uphill battle to come in and, and try to change the way those people were doing things. Yeah, that makes total sense. And like, even with like a smallish university like App State, it's like, oh, they say they do all these sustainable things. And then like you get to see firsthand that it's just kind of feels like all talk a lot of the time. So mm -hmm. like, was that part of the reason you decided to leave? Was that it was just like, was there an aspect of that job that felt like banging your head against a wall or just like too much? Because mm -hmm. it's one thing for like a university in North Carolina versus a like insanely large company like ExxonMobil mm -hmm. and like that's your actual job too, so. Yeah, I, so I, I, took the job because I believed that it could have a lot of impact, positive impact in that like, it's such a big company and their supply chain is huge and global that I was kind of like, okay, if I can nudge this even a little bit, 
it's going to have big kind of rippling impact, which I think is true. I just found personally that it was exhausting um, to just feel, I mean, like you said, like I was hitting my head against the wall constantly. And also just like I was completely misaligned with the corporation, like little, I was a little fish swimming upstream and I honestly was just kind of miserable. My mental health got really bad. Like my anxiety was through the roof. I was having like body manifestations of my anxiety and like really sick. Um, And so I just kind of realized like I couldn't really carry on with it and I needed to do something that I like in my soul felt more aligned with or I was gonna break down um so yeah I made it two years and then but it was it was honestly after just a couple of months that I started looking for something else to do like I knew pretty fast I wasn't gonna make it for for the long haul mm-hmm. it seems like your like current position in academia is pretty much doing the same thing that you wanted to accomplish at Exxon just in a environment that seems more supportive and like healthy I guess yeah I mean it's it's something I still struggle with though because it's hard to say which is better you know like I I do worry sometimes like oh was I selfish to leave that role because there weren't many people within the company thinking that way and like they need people in the company thinking that way and there is such just huge room for impact if you're just thinking scale. Um, so, it, you know, it makes me wonder, like, I think tangibly, if you're looking at like, I don't know, gigatons of carbon or some, some kind of metric like that, like I probably could have more of an impact at somewhere like ExxonMobil, but like I said, I just couldn't do it, you know, like, and it wasn't worth it for me to be miserable. And I, you know, academia has its own challenges. And one is that I do worry like, okay, I do this research and, and I'm committed to doing research that matters and impacts people but I still worry like, okay, I write a paper and it goes behind a paywall somewhere and 10 people read it in its lifetime, you know? Um, So there's just different ways to think about impact. And I think you need both. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And you need to do which one is not gonna destroy your mental health and physical health and spirit. Yeah, that's a that's another good thing to go off of because like I try to be somewhat environmentally conscious and educated about that stuff and I'll listen to like a podcast or read an article and it just seems like so hopeless and then I feel like a lot of people experience that, like, oh like this is this is bad. <laughs> like how do you like I'll see something like that once a week and it'll freak me out for a little bit. But like as someone who like studies that stuff for a living, how do you not 
Like, how are you not a nihilist right now? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it can be really hard. Um, And this is also a challenge when I teach this stuff because I kind of have to make a decision of like, okay, how much do I want to scare the kids, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's a balance because you don't... You know, I, I think the fact that we're still where we are now shows that the alarmism doesn't work. You know, like, people can watch all the documentaries and read the articles and get freaked out, but I think it just causes people to shut down, like you said. Like, it feels so big, and it's so uncomfortable and so hard to even process in your brain, like, our brains don't do a good job of processing the idea of something as big as global climate change um, that I think the response is just to push it away somewhere. So I guess that's part of what motivates me is like hopelessness isn't useful. You know, it doesn't get things done. It doesn't lead to better research or activism like if you're completely hopeless you're not gonna go march at a march for science right because it it doesn't matter yeah (laughs) (laughs) you have to you have to believe at least on some level that there's something we can do (laughs) Mm -hmm. which i hold on to but i mean that's not to say that i don't get jaded or sad or angry because yeah i mean even when I talk to people who don't think about these things very much, if I say like, oh, Miami is not going to exist in 40 years, people shut down, you know, and I know that and I can hold that information, but no one wants to hear that. Um, It's just, it's weird because I'm like, okay, I know this place is going to vanish, but I can't think about it too much or I'll just stay in bed all day. So it's a, a fine line. Yeah, and this is something like you've touched on before and even in that presentation you gave to my class. But like one thing I'm starting to learn is is like people can like read an article of like statistics about like what Miami's gonna look like in forty years and stuff like that. And there's just like this objectively like scientific point of view for climate change and it kind of like throws numbers at people and it uh, definitely can make things seem very hopeless but I feel like that's only like a chunk of the entire big picture of just more of like why are we in the situation in the first place like what are the things that are contributing to climate change as a whole because like once you can understand those then start thinking of ways to change that because it's not just like if you look at it of like the earth's temperature is rising that's just like a tiny little chunk of it so i think it's another one of those issues that's oversimplified to be to being just like all climate change is is like the earth is getting warmer and there's going to be bad stuff because of that when there's just like oh there's economic reasons we're in this situation and there's social reasons and just all sorts of other stuff so mm-hmm. And that's what makes it kind of interesting besides just terrifying, so. (laughs) Yeah, 
definitely like that's what excites me about it is it's connected to so many things and like I think if you care about you know social justice then you should care about climate change because even like everything the impacts of climate change are not evenly distributed across all people um and I also think that there's a lot of power beyond the data in just storytelling around climate change. And it's something I've started to think about more, but I think it can help bring that overwhelming bigness. And even like you see a number and it's like, okay, still kind of abstract, but like bring it down to the personal and have more of an emotional response, but you know, not one of, not one of despair, but like, I think we need to understand climate change as working across all of these scales from the individual, you know, communities, regions, globally, of course, and there's different, different impacts. It looks different across each of those scales. So kind of going off of what I was saying earlier, what would you say, like, should the average Joe's attitude toward climate change be? Because there's the, like, I've run into the people that are like, oh, like, I'm not going to, I'm going to bring my own, like, metal straw with me everywhere and save the turtles. And, like, that's, like, look at me. I'm, like, fixing this problem. Like, it's fantastic. Then there's the other side of the coin where it's people, like, screw all of this. The only way it's going to be better is if the smart people do something about it. So, like, Mm -hmm. I don't give a crap. Like, me having a not using a plastic straw isn't going to do anything so who cares about any of it so like Mm. what would the ideal in between of that look like do you think (laughs) yeah i i mean i think not using the plastic straw matters not because it's going to make a dent in global climate change, but because we're social creatures and it signals to other people that you care about this thing and are willing to take action to address it. And possibly people around you will see it and think about it where they might not have thought about it before or, you know, do their own research where they might not have before or take their own actions and kind of propagate that to their own networks and their own families and friends. So I think that totally matters. Like, you know, I'm a vegetarian because it's one of the bigger things you can do as an individual to reduce your own carbon footprint. I know me being a vegetarian is going to do absolutely, you know, zero for global climate change, but It also allows me to live by my values in a way that is important too. And also, you know, it does, I haven't changed anyone's diet, I think, but it shows other people that you can care and you can do something about it, even if it's just for yourself. Um, And I mean, on the other hand, you know, to say, 
nothing I do matters, so why bother, like, is equally dangerous for the same reasons, (laughs) because if nobody cares and everyone has that attitude, it's going to be worse. (laughs) You know, it's a scale thing. You can do your piece. It's like voting, right? It's like people say voting doesn't matter. I'm just a drop in the bucket. But it does because it scales. And if everyone has the attitude of voting doesn't matter, then you get Donald Trump. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not saying like kid yourself and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a wonderful person. And <laughs> there, there can be like some performative aspect to people like that, like the virtue signaling of like, look at my straw. But in the scheme of things, I'd also rather have that than the alternative. <laughs> So there's no like balance really. I say do what you can. Don't kill yourself to do everything because in that way it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> yeah. And don't do nothing. But ultimately there's is going to have to be like a pretty significant change to our like policies within the government in order to change this stuff though, right? Like and that seems like part of the yeah. anxiety in like recent years is like oh, we just had four years of, like, backtracking, and mm-hmm. it can feel kind of helpless just sitting there, like, oh, like, yeah. we're going back, and this is, like, the way our government's doing it. Like, what do you do about it? <laughs> so that's just another yeah. aspect of it that can make it seem pretty difficult. And honestly, like, it might sound cheesy, but in that sense, one of the best things you can do is vote. Mm-hmm for climate change, you're totally right. It's going to take large scale political action and mostly to address what corporations are doing. So it, it seems, you know, the corporations aren't going to do it without regulations or requirements from the government. Um, but also in the, in the absence of governments, doing anything like for example if we had more trump corporations could have a really significant impact and i think consumers can also push corporations to do that you know like if if everyone who buys stuff did say i'm not gonna buy plastic straws that would have an impact or if everyone said you know i'm only going to buy beyond burgers instead of meat that would have an impact so there there is space beyond the government ultimately you need the government but i feel like we're in a place now where it's like time is so tight that like people were saying during the trump years like okay we can't just wait for the government to get better we need to be you know, pulling these other levers to try to buy us more time, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we backtrack to yeah. like Exxon just for a quick second? I, mm-hmm. Not even Exxon specifically, but like, what was your time in Texas like? Like, what do you think of Texas yeah. as a whole? <laughs> as a whole, I don't know, <laughs> but I actually liked Houston. Houston is like the most diverse city in the United States, actually. There's a ton of immigrants from all over. Um, the The Bush Airport taxi line apparently has the most languages spoken 
in like that given radius of anywhere in the world. Um, so Houston was fun. I mean, there's a ton of good food. I lived like right by a really lovely walking trail along the bayou. People were active. People were, it was like laid back in a way that I liked. You know, people were kind of casual, come as you are. It was very hot, very muggy. <laughs> um, also a little overwhelming. It's just a massive city, but overall I, I liked Houston. Have you Best margaritas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, have you read much about this, like uh, Texas becoming the new California stuff, and like all the tech moving to Texas, and like if so, uh, no. <laughs> no, that's interesting. But um, I think Texas might be next to turn blue, which would be cool to see. Yeah, I'm curious. Houston's very blue. Like Houston had a, a black lesbian mayor when I was there. You know, Houston itself was very blue. Yeah. I mean, that'd be, I, I guess we can't discuss it, but I was curious what your thoughts would be on that because I've, I'm not well educated on it, but I've heard that like lots of tech companies are moving to Texas to like mm. get out of all the issues they're facing with the way the government's run in California. And then just like some theories about what places like LA and San Francisco look like five, 10 years down the road and like what the bigger cities in Texas will look like with the growth that they'll have, but that could be, mm. that could be for another time. <laughs> Next time. Yeah. I know there's a lot of tech in Austin, like Austin is a really cool city. So that wouldn't surprise me if more companies are moving there. Like Austin was also super hip and young and blue. <laughs> um, I'd like to hear some stories of like your travels. Cause you've been, out of the country quite a few times, like Zanzibar, I know, and all your research in Bangladesh. Uh, how have your experiences in different countries far from the U.S. Uh, correlated with each other? Hmm. Yeah, I guess my Zanzibar was my first major international trip, and I spent two months there living with a host family in a pretty rural village and teaching in the in the village's school um and it was just amazing i mean staying with the host family was so nice because i was part of a family you know they fed me and taught me as much swahili as i could learn and just really embraced me and then teaching was really challenging but rewarding um and i i have some guilt around it actually because you know there's issues with foreign young white people coming to international communities and inserting yourself for a little bit and then leaving which is what i did you know um and it was a little harder because the program I was with was really great. It was an international NGO. And so we were teaching for two months and we prepared really detailed materials about all the students and handover documents basically, because there was supposed to be a, a group of volunteers coming in after us. So there would be some continuity, but there was a 
uh, like a small attack on tourists in Zanzibar right after we left. So they ended up canceling the group that was supposed to come in after us. So I have a lot of guilt, you know, about those students who had teachers, had me as a teacher for two months and then nothing basically where they should have had more. Um, But yeah, I think it, it was an amazing experience. And again, just kind of broadened the world for me. And I think, I mean, especially in Africa, I guess in all of these places that are like, you know, global South kind of poor, there's a narrative that we hear about them in the West that's like, you know, we see images of the starving children and, you know, the suffering, it's images of suffering usually. And I think being there and just obviously experiencing like a different narrative of like, you know, a vibrant, full, wonderful life and just like being lucky enough to be a part of that for a really short amount of time. Um, I guess I feel some responsibility now to like challenge those narratives if I hear them and feel that responsibility. Like, I mean, especially with all the Islamophobia going on in this country right now, it's like extra important. But I just thought that was so sad of like, tell them we're not all terrorists because you know, that person wasn't wrong to think that that would be the narrative in the United States. Yeah, it's it's just, like, kind of strange in general how many Americans have this, like, weird form of nationalism where it's, like, just because a country is different from us economically or religiously and culturally, racially, racially like, all these main big things that they're uh inferior in some way just because it's not the same which is kind of interesting and like even with just like like you don't hear complaints about european countries that are kind of similar to us so it's like and there's certain european countries that are also like not uh uh like economically lower than us but like people don't complain about that all the time which is kind of interesting yeah, it's completely racialized mm-hmm. i mean you can't separate it from that yeah um my <laughs> my audio like crashed for a second because it's been going for so long do you have anywhere to be or are we good <laughs> no i'm good i'm good okay good. and sorry this has been like more of an interview it's just like if we could do a part two someday where we can like yeah, uh, have more discussions, but I think my three listeners will get a kick out of learning all this about you. So, <laughs> uh, what about uh, more specifics of like the research you're doing? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So broadly, my research is on like climate adaptation in coastal regions, so how people respond to climate change, how climate change interacts with social and economic vulnerability, 
And my dissertation work is looking at how uh, climate change impacts human migration in Bangladesh. So how people choose to move, how climate and environmental factors influence how they choose to move, you know, where they choose to go, all those big questions. Um, but I also think about these very similar questions in the United States because they're, they're not completely separate issues, even though um, a big kind of underlying theme of my research is that adaptation is very context specific. So if we really want to understand adaptation, we need to have a sense of the local culture, local social economic conditions and all that. Um, but beyond that, there's similar challenges for a lot of coastal places, just environmentally. How has the past year of COVID changed the way you've been doing your research besides just like travel? <laughs> mm. Yeah, so I was really lucky in that all my research is on my computer. I do a lot of modeling and data analytics. So if I have the data, I can do it from anywhere. Um, it really it impacted me more in just like personally adjusting to the new normal and like trying to get my brain to work at a reasonable capacity again. But technically, you know, I really wasn't limited, which is great because I there were tons of grad students who, you know, have to be in a lab to do their work or have to travel to collect samples and they were much more disrupted. So for them, do they just have to like do what they can or like pretty much put their research on hold for like until it gets figured out or? Yeah, I know a lot of people definitely do what they can. Like if they had any data already, analyze that. Like I know some people had to kind of shift gears and maybe like add a modeling project where they didn't have one before, like kind of adjust. But I don't know, my department at least has been really good about adjusting expectations and being supportive. And I think for all of us, they've kind of said, if you need more time, we'll, we'll help you out, which not all departments and not all programs are that understanding. So another place I've been lucky. I'm curious about like the data modeling and how that like specifically works like could you elaborate more on like the details of that yeah so one of the methods i use is called agent-based modeling which is um i'll use my favorite metaphor to describe it do you know the game roller coaster tycoon <laughs> not until you mentioned it the other day really <laughs> no. okay so it's like basically a game where you design a theme park and you have like individual people running around your theme park and like they can get sick and they can get upset. Um, so I like to describe agent based modeling is kind of like that. But as the programmer, you're coding for the way those individuals interact with their environment, and how they make decisions and how they interact with each other. Um, so it's a really powerful tool if you're interested in, like I mentioned way back, like different scales of a problem and how those scales might interact. So I wanna know how individual decision-making 
impacts broader migration dynamics, like from a community. I know that the individuals matter, the households matter, and the community matters. So with the agent-based modeling, I can design agents for each of those units, and I can program them to kind of exchange information. So for example, in my model, I have a community that's simulated. The community can experience a environmental shock. So like a drought, for example. So at the community level, a drought can occur. That impacts my households in that if they own land, their land might be impacted directly. Or if their land isn't impacted, their neighbor's land might be. Um, and so the households themselves might feel that or at the individual level, my individuals are really interested in looking for work. So they're motivated by trying to find a job. And if the community experiences a drought, there might be fewer jobs within that community that they can seek out. So there's these levels of dynamics. And then when I put them together, the idea is that we can learn something about the system by we call it emergent behavior. So what emerges from these interactions that we wouldn't necessarily expect or wouldn't know if we were just looking at one of those levels. Um, so that's the method I use. And so it allows me to use information from, you know, we have Bangladeshi colleagues who give us a lot of input we have household surveys, so actually talking to people in Bangladesh. There's other papers, of course. So, so use the context-specific information to then inform the model and then see what we can learn. It's kind of like an iter iterative cycle. Then what, what can the model teach us about, you know, either what the future might look like or how different factors might be more or less important those kinds of things. So do you have to like actually like code all of that? There's not like yeah. a system that like you just enter some parameters and like change variables and it spits it right back out or? <laughs> no, unfortunately. So there's a program called NetLogo that is specifically for agent-based modeling and it'll actually let you, it's kind of a funny programming language. Like all the agents are called turtles for some reason. Uh, so you, yeah. so when, you, when you program it, you have to say like, ask turtles, turn right. Um, and you can actually like do some cool visualization with that. So you can like create a visual environment and have your turtles moving around. But I, my model is not like that. My model uses Python. So like mm -hmm. I, in my mind, I pictured little people moving around, but really it's just lines and lines and lines of code and different files that talk to each other and then spit out CSVs of output. So How... it doesn't look like anything cool. Yeah, turtle sounds way more fun than numbers. Then, yeah. But... Uh... How, how did you learn how to like deal with this coding stuff? Cause it seems very difficult. Is like a lot of it like learning as you go or did you like go into it and just like feel confident right away? Definitely not. It's a ton of trial and error. 
like a lot of debugging, a lot of, uh, I don't know. I'm convinced that if you want to be a good coder, you just have to be a good Googler <laughs> because like any, any bug I've ever encountered, someone on the internet has also encountered it and been nice enough to share a solution. <laughs> so it's like very, especially when I'm learning the language, I, I know a couple programming languages now, but when I started the model, I was pretty new to Python. So just a lot of like, you know, slow, how do I, how do I do this? Does it work? Testing each line, testing different chunks, making sure they're doing what I want them to do. What, but what percent of your, it comes together. <laughs> yeah, I bet. What percent of like your research revolves around the modeling? The modeling is all of my dissertation work, so it probably should be 90% of my time, but I also have some side projects, so it's probably more like 60% of my time right now. Um, but my master's work was using machine learning, so more data-driven analysis, which I really enjoy too. And then uh, I have a project along the East Coast of the United States that also uses machine learning to look at coastal vulnerability. Um, but everything I do in some sense, not everything, most of what I do in some form uses coding. Like I'm trying to kind of create, establish myself as like a, you know, quantitative researcher who can do the coding, do the modeling, but also appreciate the social and, um, you know, can do interdisciplinary work too. But I think my main skill set is the, the quantitative modeling stuff. With that, is there like an end goal you're looking for? Like, is there going to be a point where you're like, I found enough to like move on past mm -hmm. <laughs> more modeling? Or is it just like, I'm going to continue to do this and just make observations from what's going on within your models? Yeah, so the dissertation will end eventually and it will be, I, I have a very specific proposal of like, I wanna answer these questions with the model. And if I do that, then you have to give me a PhD and I'm out of here. <laughs> but, but the cool thing about the model and the way I've designed it is it's really um, flexible. So like I have, I have a document on my computer called my idea garden, where like if I have a different idea of something I can do with the model or any other project, and I don't have time to go down a rabbit hole, I'll like put that idea in the in the idea garden and just leave it there. So. I feel like everyone needs an idea garden. <laughs> Why don't I have yeah, one? Yeah, <laughs> that my practical tip. It's really good because then you don't forget it, but you know it's somewhere safe. Um, so there's no real end, like there's so many things I could do with the model. I'm sure eventually I'll design new models for new questions, but that's something I like about research, right? It's like, there's never an end. You just, <laughs> questions yield more questions. You just keep going. <laughs> How does the machine learning aspect of, you said there's some stuff on the East Coast that you're using mm -hmm. it for. How does that differ from 
the the other stuff. That project is um, looking at what's called climate gentrification. So basically, we're interested in how will climate change impact housing vulnerability and where people choose to live, um, which is a fairly new topic. Like gentrification itself is not a new topic, but people are starting to be interested in how climate impacts might interact with housing. So um, it's kind of a, a very separate project, but again, aligned, I try to keep things aligned with like a general climate adaptation vulnerability motivation. But the machine learning is what's called a an unsupervised method, which is basically a clustering analysis so at this point, because we don't know, we don't know much about climate gentrification, I can compile a bunch of data from the CDC, the census, FEMA, you know, different data sources that we have in the US, and basically feed that data to the machine and say, find the patterns in this data. You know, as the as the programmer, I'm not going to tell you what to look for, how to think about the problem, you know, find the patterns. And it can tell me, um, you know, I have to specify how many clusters, but then it can say, oh, Miami is experiencing similar patterns in the data you gave me as Queens, New York. And, you know, the Outer Banks are starting to look like Charleston. Um, and then I can tease out, you know, as someone with a brain and not just a computer, okay, what do these patterns actually mean? And it's a, it's a cool project. I'm really excited about it actually, because it's, it is pretty new. And I think it will be able to tell us something useful about like which places along the East coast are really at risk of this kind of combined impacts of climate change, housing and security higher minority populations and higher poverty rates. Like we're able to pinpoint just saying, hey machine, you don't need to know what this data even is. Where are the patterns? And it's pretty cool. It's like the results, the we're just kind of looking at preliminary results now, but they're they seem promising. So is like machine learning considered like a type of AI? Or is it just something that's like purely coded to like do the, that specific thing of like? Yeah, I think there is, I think machine learning could be classified as AI, but machine learning is also like refers to a really wide range of methods. It's basically anything where you teach the machine or you train the machine with some of your data to look for patterns. And what separates machine learning from like agent-based modeling is with agent-based modeling, I'm very explicitly saying, okay, computer, go through these steps. And I'm telling you exactly what to do versus the machine learning. I'm not giving the machine any information about the processes other than the data itself. So it's completely data-driven which is actually a criticism sometimes, depending on the application is like, you don't really need to know much about the underlying process 
to have a machine learning algorithm do something. <laughs> so you still have to be really careful about how you interpret the results. But yeah, basically you're, you're training the machine on some of your data to then predict relationships with your other data. But yeah. that can be anything from like a linear regression to a deep neural network where, you know, the machine's doing crazy algorithms that I don't really understand. <laughs> yeah, that, the whole concept of machine learning seems very, very interesting. Is that something that's just generally being used for like in academia and in research more and more these days to like help people or? Yeah, I think so. Um, one of my first papers was applying machine learning to social data, which was relatively new. Like, I think it's most commonly been used in like biostatistics, like health data um, and engineering and stuff. But my biggest thing with machine learning is it's a really, it can be a really powerful tool, but you have to be careful and deliberate about how you use it. Like your results are only going to be as good as your data. So if you have terrible data, it's not going to fix anything to put it through a machine learning algorithm. You have to be cautious about which algorithm you choose because it's going to really depend on what kind of answers or insights you want. Like the most complicated algorithm is not the right algorithm for every problem. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of like try to caution around it. Like, I guess a very real example is there's been examples of machine learning used for what's called predictive policing, which is like, oh, can we have an algorithm predict where we should have a heavier police presence? And that's obviously extremely dangerous for one, because of course the data that's being used, like if you're using data on previous arrests, to train a model. It's already model like skewed. Exactly. Yeah. If your data is biased, your model is going to be biased. And then you could potentially perpetuate that bias, but you're using the language of an algorithm, which people, you know, are more likely to think is neutral when it's not, you know, you say, oh, the algorithm told me to go there. So I'm not racist but your algorithm's racist if your data's racist, mm -hmm. right? So it's, um, that's just like a very real way it's been applied that people are, there's a lot of backlash against. Yeah, I think I read something in NPR maybe about that specifically, about like policing and yeah. that. And that's also like, broadly speaking, one of the concerns of AI is that AI will learn to be racist and all these things that humans are also so yeah. that's definitely a concern yeah I mean this is even with the agent-based modeling this is something I talked about like models aren't neutral right a model is just as biased as the data or the programmer but I think there's risk if we assume that because a model tells us something it's true or neutral or unbiased, um, there can be real danger in that. So even with my modeling, like I know 
the way I like every choice I make in my modeling is has the potential to perpetuate my own bias in the research. So it, it's just like a interesting modeling ethics question that I, I think all coders would benefit from thinking about more. Yeah, that makes sense. And like in the context of academia, like what are your thoughts on just like what bias should look like in general? Is it something that should be like everyone should be trying to eliminate it as best they can from like every form of research they do? Or is it like something that is just to be recognized and like moved on from or like what what should our relationship with like bias as a whole look like? Because I feel like there's a bunch of different ways to interpret what bias means. Yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on that question too. But I think, I personally think we have a responsibility to try to minimize it. I don't think it's possible to eliminate bias. But as a researcher, I think I have a responsibility to at least do what's in my power to make sure my research doesn't cause harm to people. And that means, you know, taking extra time maybe to think about implications and what those could mean, or better yet, starting from the beginning with input from whatever kind of community is the subject of the research. And being very deliberate, but it's never going to go away completely. So I think there's also a need for academics to be really humble about how we talk about our research. Like I, you know, you'll never hear me say my research will tell you how many people will move in Bangladesh in the next 100 years or where people will move or how people make decisions. Like I'm interested in how those things might play out for very specific conditions. Also wouldn't want someone to make policy based on it because I know <laughs> how much, how many, how much uh, limitations are in that work. So I think being really humble and upfront about the limitations of your work, like, hey, this work can tell us something about this really small part of the problem and not everything out of that, the scope of that very small part of the problem is great and there's, I mean, academics are like anyone else in that there's temptation to say, oh, my research is so impactful and, you know, completely changes the way we think about this. But I don't know. And I mean, I think academics, our incentive structures are also wrong for that, like, and wrong for like very thoughtful deliberation of our research because the incentives are published as much as you can, as fast as you can which doesn't, you know, encourage pausing and thinking through the ethical implications. But I mean, there's plenty of really great researchers who do. It's just like, I wish the structures supported that more. Yeah, all that makes total sense. I just feel like there's like, obviously, an amount of bias in anything that you're doing or proclaiming and researching and stuff. And because of that, I think it becomes a, it's very easy if you don't want to believe or like disagree with 
what's being said you can just be like point at it and be like bias like <laughs> that's yeah. bad like i'm not going to listen to any of that when you can do that with any form of argument and like obviously there's like different amounts of bias and i think what you're saying about minimizing it makes total sense but like there's also this very slippery slope i feel like of uh screaming bias at anything that you don't want to like actually think about objectively because it's in everything in some way but uh yeah so in the in the modeling world there's a really common expression that's all models are wrong but some are useful all models are wrong in that we can never capture every aspect of what's happening in the real world so they're not going to be exactly correct but the goal is then to still create a model that's useful in that it can tell us something about what's going on. So I'm not saying that having bias precludes you from learning something useful. It's just, I think as the researcher, it's our, it's our ethical imperative to like be careful and cautious, but we can still create knowledge or insight. You know, that's what we, that's what we do try to do uh maybe just like a couple more but like going on with these like problems you've experienced with research and academia as a whole like why do you think there's this air of like prestige and superior excuse me superiority in a lot of different like fields and stuff is it just like straight up ego thing or just the incentive like you were saying to like be putting out lots of research and stuff or is there like more to it than just that yeah i think i mean i think a lot of it is ego i think you know pretty much most universities or most research institutions are still you know older white people if not older white men. I think each discipline has its own history of problems. Like, so I'm in earth science, which has a history of being extractive and being closely tied with colonialism and a long history of not being very welcoming to people of color. Um, Philosophy is a very unpretty discipline in that sense, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every discipline has this history, and I think you need to think about it. But academia as a whole, yeah, I, I think with the tenure process, I think the tenure process needs to be reimagined. Like, if the number one metric is papers published, then that's a very different thing. Like that just seems like a very imperfect proxy to what you actually want to measure, which is how good of a thinker and a scholar is this person. Especially nowadays, there's so many academic journals in the world and some of them are predatory in that like, they will ask for contributions or you can kind of just like pay to get your paper published. you know, they have a huge range of legitimacy. 
and there's so many of them that like if you really want to publish it's not that hard and there's still the environment of like you know some journals are better than others and the holy grail is a paper in like science or nature but even those journals have their own problems and that they're looking for flashy results that are have a huge impact are going to look good in a headline that the media will pick up on um so i guess i do feel like there's all these distractions sometimes to what i think should be the goal which is like do honest meaningful science that you're passionate about and so again like with the community engagement like i feel very strongly that if you're doing research that has impacts on people then you need to put in time to engage with those people and you know whether it's local community organizations or you know um just citizens in general but that stuff takes a long time like building those relationships in a place takes a really long time and it's not something that you put in your like tenure promotion package you know like if i spend 2 years building a relationship with a anti-gentrification organization in miami it'll lead to richer better research i believe but you know there's even people who say oh don't do that stuff until after you get tenure then you can do all that which i think is a shame cool do you want to end on that <laughs> yeah sorry that was like maybe i won't put this on my website cuz someone will be like <laughs> you're good. dang <laughs> <laughs> just the roast of so many different things <laughs> well i just am a critic i suppose but that's not to say there aren't really good aspects of it too. Yeah, for sure. Any uh, closing remarks? <laughs> no, this was really fun. Thank you. Yeah, I hope we can do another one someday soon and have more discussions as opposed to your life history. Yeah, but we'll I do it again, it... and I want to have a, a convo and hear your thoughts too. <laughs> yeah, it's still really good though. Cool. Cool. Love you. Love you. Thanks, Steve. Yep. Bye. Bye.